Welcome to Wild Hearts at Work, a podcast redefining our relationship with work through stories and conversations with Wild Hearts who have dared to challenge the status quo. And now, here's your host, Melissa Boggs. Hello, friends. Welcome back to the Wild Hearts at Work podcast. I am your host, Melissa Boggs, as always. And this week, I am super stoked to talk about experimentation at work. And I know many of you being wild hearts that you are, this is a big part of what you do all the time. So I want to hear from one of the experts. So this week on the podcast, I am thrilled to welcome Melanie Parrish, Melanie is a speaker. She's a podcast host, a master certified coach. She is the author of the Experimental Leader book and also the Experimental Leader podcast. And she's coached organizations from Fortune 50 all into IT startups. So, so much to share with us. Melanie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Melissa. I'm so excited to be here with you. We, I don't know if there is a better tie then our wild hearts and experiments, because I feel like at the heart of, you know, sort of being wild at work um, is trying new things, taking risks, you know, building really strong experiments. Um, and I know yours, your topic is a lot about leadership in experimentation. So can you start by just telling us a bit about your work, including the book, the, the podcast, all of it? Sure. And, and I think you're right about like, there's a lot of authenticity in experimentation and trying things. Um, I think the, the book was sort of born out of that idea of like watching experimentation, um, you know, people talking about experimentation, um, looking at how people experiment Toyota, uh, Mike Rother's book, Toyota Kata. And I started to really um, feel like there was an opportunity to take those things and then talk about it in a leadership con context. So not just how do you experiment, but how do you lead experimentation? And what's that sort of juncture between experimentation uh, and leadership? Um, and I, I just, I knew the name of the book before I wrote it, because it, it's like that juncture was so interesting to me. Um, and I, I also really felt like um, the thing that really drives me as, as a human is that I feel like people really struggle in leadership, especially when they're new in leadership, and they don't get a lot of practical advice or they don't get practical ideas about leadership. You know, we... Um, we read books, we, we we talk about leadership all the time, but there's not a lot of how-tos out there. And um, and so the things I've learned in, on this journey is that I believe leadership is learned. I don't believe it's like an innate ability. I think when we talk about like people being innate leaders, like we identify leaders in grade five or something, you know, Mostly they're just dominant or charming. Uh, they're not actually leading because they don't have anybody to lead. And uh, and so all of that has become sort of the heart of the work for me is, is how do we talk about experimenting? How do we talk about leading experimenting? How do we talk about leading others? Um, and then what does it take to do that? Amazing. There's so much of what you just said that speaks to 
my work and what I see in the world too. So I, I'm just so excited to have you here. So I want to ask you, as you've been on this journey of writing the book and, and hosting the podcast too, because those are news stories, right? Like mm-hmm. you're getting news stories all the time. What is something that didn't surprise you that organically or almost, you know, intuitively you knew. And then as you wrote the book and heard the stories, you go, yep, that is exactly what I thought it would be. And you know, I'm going to ask you the reverse in a second, but what is exactly what you thought it would be? Um, I think that, so one of the, one of the chapters in my book is about feedback loops and the, the, it's, it's so funny because you write a book and then you get to talk about that book for a while and the ideas gel. And so I learned from my book and the conversations I have too, but feedback loops, like I had done a lot of work around consensus, decision-making and formal consensus and deep listening and deep democracy. And if, <laughs> if there's one thing that's important, it's that dialogue between people. And that didn't change. Like nothing mm. ever changes about that for me. Absolutely. Just the the clarity and communication that is required, especially if you're trying to lead a team through experimentation, because that clarity can mean safety. Or if you're having any hard conversation ever, just like (laughs) if it's tough, don't shut it down. Listen and talk like just whatever it is. If it, it is so amazing to me, how many people I see along the way, um, just try to shut down dialogue. (laughs) <laughs> sure. Cause it's hard. And, you know, it's funny you talking about, you know, in grade five, I mean, I think nowadays, you know, we're beginning to understand the importance of those skills, but most of us were not taught those skills alongside arithmetic and spelling, you know, or cursive. Okay. <laughs> and so, you know, we're learning them as adults. And so, you know, we kind of shy away from that because it's like, oh, I don't know if, I don't even know if I want to deal with that if I can. Um, so absolutely. So the the reverse, what has surprised you on this journey? I, I think in an early, like right after my book came on, I had that question about our leaders, you know, can people learn leadership? And And when I first got that question, I was like, I don't know. Let me think about that. And then it became clearer and clearer that, yes, they can. And it's sort of the uh, raison d'etre for me is to help people learn how to be leaders. Like, like it's not even just um, an idea. It's like the reason for my work is to help people figure out how they maximize their own leadership, whether it's leading a team or leading an organization or even just leading their own life. Like we all make decisions and have vision and we try things and um, and we're leading our own lives every day, everybody. And we can do that better. Those are skills, not some sort of innate, you know, sense that some people are good at that vision and some people aren't. Um, it, it's actually a set of skills. So that, that was surprising to me. Um, I don't think I was that clear when I started the book, but I'm very clear now. Absolutely. And you're so right about the, the idea that leadership, you know, the outdated idea, maybe that leadership boils down to dominance and charisma. And, you know, there's so much about that, that I hope I'm now seeing change, you know, in our society, we recognize the, 
the need for empathy and for communication skills, et cetera. Um, and to bring it back to the topic at hand and just experimentation, like the best leaders that I know, I mean, your book, hello, you know, the best leaders that I know are the ones who are willing to take risks, but they're calculated risks, right? So if you were talking to one of these new leaders and let's say that they have these, um, they have these communication skills, right? Like I have empathy. I'm a good listener as a leader, but I don't really know how to lead a team through experimentation. Mm-hmm. What would you, what, what's the advice that you would get them on kind of launching out into experimenting for the first time? I think the most important thing a new leader can do or any leader can do around experimentation is to start to do the thought leadership for the team and to use the language of experimentation. So anytime we have a hypothesis in an organization um, and we think, oh, well, let's try this. We do it all the time. It's always an experiment. It's not like we're starting to experiment we're already experimenting. But what happens if we don't have the language of experimentation is that people live and die by their ideas. So they get it wrong. But if you start as a leader to say, what's the first thing you're going to try? How can I help you? Um, What did you learn? What will you try next? Then you're leading experimentation and people don't have to get it right. Like the idea that that scientists scientists can't get their hypotheses right in the beginning. I don't know why we think we can in business. <laughs> so we want to set up small enough experiments so that we collect data so the next experiment is better. So, for example, if we're launching a marketing campaign, we don't want to launch it at a million dollars a year. We want to launch it and get all the data we can at $10,000 or $5,000 or $100, depending on the size of the company. Because then we can say, oh, what did we learn from that? And then we can invest more as we are backing um, data. But in the beginning, we don't want to go all in. We want to we do safe to fail experiments. And we can, as leaders, help foster that thought by just calling the things we try experiments. Sure. So... I feel like we talk about that a lot in the business world. Yeah. And then we plan annual planning, 12 month long, multi-million dollar plans. Why are we so allergic to reducing risk and doing, you know, treating things like experiments? It's a really great question. And I don't know the answer completely, but I'll tell you what I notice as you say it. I notice that, Um, there's probably some bias, like people who happen to have good ideas or who negotiate the current system have some sort of investment in maintaining the status quo because they win personally. I notice that we want to be certain when we invest. And so certainty wins over uncertainty because we have a bias towards certainty. Um, and I, I don't know, I'm just going to say it. I think that like white cisgendered men sound very certain when they come up with ideas and um, people are comforted by them. I've had really strong women clients who need a lawyer and they just want to hire their dad 
to be the lawyer because it makes them feel safe. So I think we have a bias toward that certainty, dominant, charming voice. And so we go with that. And so all of like, there's a multiple of, um, there's multiple factors that have us maintain that status quo. Absolutely. So how do we, I love the practicality of everything that you said prior to that, right? About, you know, designing the experiment, using the language, but how do we challenge that part? Like, how do we challenge the fear and the the need for safety and bias to unleash all of that? Because I know I'm asking a question. Let me add one more thing, but I know my listeners and I know that there are many of us, that's what the wildness is all about, right? Yeah. Like I want to try things, but I am in this system that has a bias toward safety and a bias toward certainty that is not really certain. Let's be honest. So how do we challenge that? Well, I think some of it is through just um, winning, like you win. Experiments work and a, a structured experimenting system um, a kata, a way to gather the data from the experiments you do in a really systematic way works for innovation. You can continuously improve an idea. So you're not stuck with the idea you had at breakfast. You get the idea a month later when you've honed it. So, so in real life, does it work, especially like in software or something, if you're actually looking for what did we learn today? And then you're looking for what can we learn tomorrow? What's the next thing we try? You actually just come up with a better product through experimentation. Um, so I, <laughs> I sort of like the renegade approach with some of this. Like you start with your team, you start to say, well, what's the experiment you're going to try? What are your bottlenecks? What can I help you get out of the way? So you just start doing it rather than having, um, I found out a long time ago, like, I don't know, 20 years ago, I used to teach workshops on consensus decision-making. And eventually I just started teaching consensus decision-making skills because really if an organization has the skills, they'll do the, they'll make their decisions that way. If they have mm -hmm. the skills of listening and understanding what people's viewpoints are, so they don't drive, dive off a cliff. But if you have to have the decision to have an experimental culture, you might have to fight for it. But if you just start doing it, it's like, it's like that's a good way to rebel. Like ask the people below you, um, what, what's the experiment you're going to try? And then as you talk to the people above you, you can say, I'm not exactly sure what's going to work. And I thought I might try this first. How do you feel about that? And that's that feedback loop. And the person goes, well, I'd really like it if you did a little more of this. And you go, okay, well, let's do that for the first experiment. And then we'll see what we learn. So it's almost like you don't ask for permission. You just start talking about it. Um, is the, the and, it, and it's like one conversation at a time. Um, but it's, it's a little bit sticky, this idea of seeing things as experiments. I find it with my clients. Like I hear them three years later and they're like, well, I experimented with this and I tried this and then their whole staff is talking about it too. So the idea of experimentation, you can, um, in a traditional, like almost a water, it's like, it's like waterfall. Like you plan everything for a year. It's super waterfall-y. Um, and so if you start to use the language of experimentation, people like it. It gives them a breath. So they they keep using it because it's spacious somehow. It's hard Ooh. to give up once you find it. 
I love that word. It's spacious. Like it's, it's making room, making mm-hmm. room for you and for me and for possibility. Yeah, I love yeah. that. Well, and you don't, if you're, if you're experimenting, then someone can give you feedback on the idea without it being a personal attack. Mm-hmm. Someone can say, I like that thing you tried, but I'm wondering if you might be able to add this to it in the next iteration and it might work better. And it's not like you got it wrong. It's like, yeah, in that that's a great next step for an experiment to add. Yeah, beautiful. Very growth mindset. You know, it's it's getting us all in that mindset of like everything we do, you know, we can try something again the next time. Mm-hmm. So I want to flip the script a little bit because we were kind of basically talking about like, what do you do if you're really experimental, but your boss isn't? I mean, it's kind of what we just talked about. What if you as a leader, you're, you're pretty good with experimenting. You've got these skills, you're using the language, but your team is still resistant and it's not like an angry resistance. It's just, they're scared. How do you help them unblock themselves, set themselves free for that? It's not, it's not actually what I see a lot. It's, 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 um, but I'm going to pretend I can see it. <laughs> um, it. It's usually the top down where the, where the friction is. Um, I, I think it's unskilled. Like I, if, if people aren't nimble, if they can't move, if they can't innovate, it's, it's not going to be just around experimentation. It's going to be around lots of things. Um, and so I also like the bottlenecks conversation in here because it, it's got the flavor of it. Um, if, if you're looking for a book to read, Eliyahu Goldrath, The Goal is a great one to look at bottlenecks. And um, if you look at bottlenecks, so what's in your way? How can I help you? Um, what are you, what obstacles are you facing? What's your current reality? Where do you want to get to? Um, all of that is all about experimentation without using the language of experimentation. Um, and most people can identify their bottlenecks or obstacles. They know what's in their way. Um, I have a meeting every day. I have a full-time tech person in my company. I have a meeting with her every day. And the primary question that runs those meetings is what do you need from me in order to do your work today? Mm, love it. And yeah. it's it's literally, she can do more work in a day than like, I can't, I don't do work. I don't get anything done in my company. I'm coaching and talking and doing podcasts and producing content. She gets 15 minutes of me and she can run. Beautiful. I think what you just described, though, is what I do see. Um, She has context and whatever context she needs that she doesn't have, she can get from you in those 15 minutes. And it sounds to me like she has really clear boundaries as well, right? She knows where and when she can run. They're pretty wide boundaries, I would guess. And when I do see this, where like the, the leader is quite experimental, but the team is still a little bit hesitant, is when they're lacking those things. Right. When that's a good point. I think that's a really good point. And you're right. She does because she does a lot of marketing stuff and she has style guides and past approved content. And she like she can go and find things I've written like she she has a lot that she can look to that's structured um, and guidelines. Yeah, I think. Oh, I was going to say one more thing. The other thing is, if she asked me, 
a question about something she has access to. Um, I can be a tiny bit sharp. Like, I don't even know why you're talking to me about that. You have that. Like that's, <laughs> you have that within your boundaries. Like I also will sort of stop a conversation where my, the person crosses over the boundary with me because I, I'm the easiest answer. I never want to be the easiest answer either. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I see when I do see these teams who the the leader is sitting there pulling their hair out, like, come on, like, why can't I get them to, you know, experiment or self-organize nine times out of 10 it's fear. And it's them coming back to, you know, hear him or her over and over because they're not clear about their boundaries or they don't have enough information. They don't have the context. So they're afraid to make those decisions or to try those experiments. Well, and um, also if the, if they get um, corrected, like a, you know, like a, a bad dog kind of correction, every time they try something that there's not clarity and, and the, the, the biggest bottleneck is decisions from the top. Like that'll kill innovation faster than anything. The, the lack of flow. Innovation and souls and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and culture. Absolutely. And and we're all guilty of it to some degree. Um, and that's where for me, like one of my biggest leadership lessons has been context and boundaries. Because if I set someone up and I don't have that, then... I'm setting them and myself up to have to pull back whatever, you know, I don't love using the word empowerment, but you know, whatever I said, this is you. Oh, wait. Oh, no, maybe not. Maybe I need to make you change that because I wasn't clear. Right. Um, So, yeah, I I think that is a huge thing that comes up for a lot of people. Well, and I, I think, you know, here, this brings me back to feedback loops too, especially in an innovative culture. So if you're creating jobs or you're doing a project that's never been done before in accounting, it's super easy to have roles and boundaries in software development or things that are changing, you know, fast. It's really difficult to have boundaries and roles. The roles change, the boundaries change, the, the pace is fast. The pace is slow. The, um, the deliverable changes, like it, it happens all the time. And so really checking in to know if people are, are, do they feel like they have what they need to succeed? Like that's the conversation that I think is really key at any level all the time um, for people to be able to experiment, for people to do their work. Um, but I, but I think an innovative climate takes us out of things that are super hierarchical. Um, like a, a, in a hierarchy, you don't have to talk to anybody. They just, whoever's at the top gets to do whatever they want. Like, I mean, not really, but like, but as we flatten our organizations, then we need to have better feedback loops. We need better emotional intelligence skills. We need to check in with our people. We need to know how they're feeling or thinking because, at any moment, like they might be doing three people's jobs because two people left and nobody else is going to do it. And all of a sudden their performance of vows look like they're flailing because all of a sudden they have more work than they can do and you can't succeed at anything. Sure. Sorry. I think I just got off on a crazy wild tangent. (laughs) No, not at all. Because what I was going to say was like with the feedback loops, 
the beauty of kind of predetermined feedback loops like you have with, you know, with your staff is that it doesn't mean something's wrong. You know, like so many of us grew up, quote unquote, sort of in the corporate world where the only time that you talk to your boss is when they were going to correct you, yeah. you know? And so we're set up in such a way that it's like, no, we just talk on this rhythm and, you know, whatever comes up, comes up. I'm here to help. And, you know, I might give you feedback, but it doesn't necessarily have to be bad. And so I think that's incredibly important. I mean, that's super important to culture is not going into a meeting with this anticipation of reprimand, you know, but like, we're going to talk about this and it's going to be a two-way conversation, you know, this feedback. Well, and as a practical, like, hey, you feel like you're tearing your hair out as a leader and your team's not succeeding. My first thing I would ask you to try if you were my coaching client would be try having more frequent meetings that are much shorter. So have, you know, have a 15 minute meeting three times a week and see what their, how their performance changes if they get access to you. Definitely. If, if they tell you what they're going to do, you know, during that week and then just nothing gets done, then you might have a performance issue. But if you don't have a performance issue, you have an information issue or you have a decision issue or you have a lack of resources issue, you will find out if you talk to them, you know, you take your one minute weekly meeting and you turn it into three 15 minute meetings, you will know by the end of the week what's happening. That sounds like an experiment, Melanie. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> that sounds like an experiment we could try. It is. It is. I challenge everyone to try it if you have that problem. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that leads me to a super interesting question. What kind of people approach you for coaching work and what kind of coaching, and I'm obviously not asking you to reveal any confidential details, but like what kind of conversations do you have in coaching around mm -hmm. experimental leadership? Yeah. I mean, my, my coaching practice predates my book. So they, so they were sort of guinea pigs along the way. And in many ways I wrote the book for my clients, like codifying what they need. Um, often people approach me who are super high performers, like, like, especially in tech, like if they're in tech, they were high performer individual contributors, like they're as ICs, they were rock stars. And then they get promoted and they're like, oh no, now I have to leave a team. Uh-oh, what do I do? Mm -hmm. And they just, they think it's going to be easy because they're so good at their job. They were so good at their job and now they don't know how to do their job. Um, and so they approach me then. I love working with those people because it's usually, um, it's usually, a, it's pretty straightforward to help them win. Um, and then uh, my clients stay with me a really long time. I have one client I've had over 20 years. Um, oh my gosh. <laughs> and, um, and so the things we talk about, it's, it's exactly the things I'm saying that people can do with their staff. We talk about what their bottlenecks are, what their dreams are. Um, sometimes it's just like talking through, like, I feel like I'm like a de facto board of directors for their life. Like I can just be a thought partner to, um, to ask them questions so that they understand themselves more clearly 
Sometimes I'm bringing in leadership materials of some kind. You know, it's, it's, uh, I call it coach salting because it's not straight coaching, but it's um, sort of bringing in things or ideas to the coaching. Um, And then it, it literally, I do whole life coaching. I'm, I'm a business coach and an executive coach. Um, I, I always say that um, most of my clients are um, unicorns and empire builders. <laughs> um, so people who are kind of one-offs who were just trying to figure out like how they make a, a difference, like how do they make a mark in the world? And then people who just want to build um, empires, like they, they don't see limits for themselves and they'd like a thought partner who's going to go on that journey with them to help hold it all. Um, and then I get a few like tech consultants and occasionally coaches and, you know, people who are um, really good at what they do. I'm trying to think of who else. It's always people who find themselves like successful beyond what they thought and they're trying to figure it out. Sounds like maybe some of your clients also belong on this podcast, but that's a different conversation. <laughs> Probably. Um I'm curious if those conversations changed throughout the last 18 months and people's, you know, sort of perception of experimentation, but also just success. And, you know, how do I do this had to have changed throughout the pandemic? It was, I will, I will say in all honesty, it was a coaching was a heavy lift Mm -hmm. uh, for the first six months of COVID. Um, I really saw, like, my clients were struggling, you know, with the same things everybody was struggling with. I just had a pile of them to talk to. And so I struggled because it was just a lot to hold. It was a lot to hold that group of clients in their lives and to walk with them uh, when they were alone and isolated and sad. And um, and the, the isolation was just um, horrible for some people. Mm-hmm. Some people was fine. I have one son who like COVID was terrible for him. The other one, it like got amazing grades and loved online learning. You know, it was these two different, they're twins too. So it's even funnier that they wow. Speaking of experimentation, <laughs> um, <laughs> twins are the ultimate experiment. Um, the right now, I feel like, um, like then it felt like people kind of got their feet and I started to see some joy again, especially over the summer. Now I'm starting to see a lot of burnout again, like, but different than the isolation. It was like trauma in the mm-hmm. beginning. I felt like I had a whole slate of clients. Um, and, and some of them had trauma from COVID. And then now I feel like people are just tired. Like they were all succeeding. They were all diving in and trying to succeed during COVID. Um, And they did, but now they just got tired. Like it's just been going on so long. And, um, And there's just some burnout. I feel burnout all over, but it's not as heavy as trauma. Yeah, I feel that too. I'm curious if in the earliest stages, you know, we talked earlier about how fear can play such a a role in people's willingness or 
excitement about trying new things. And so when I think about COVID, it's like you have this, this convergence of like fear of the unknown every, like we don't know what's going to happen next for people's health, but for business, et cetera. So lots of fear, but also necessity to experiment and try things because we've never been here before. And so I'm, I'm curious, like through your clients or even just through your community, how did you see those things battling and like what won out? Did experimenting went out or did the fear went out or both? <laughs> well, I think people like early COVID just didn't have a choice. They had to experiment or die like in business. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're just like, like they were fighting for their lives um, as business owners So there were a lot of heroics. Toyota talks a lot about like not wanting heroics in, um, I may be preaching to the choir here as you nod, I see it on your face. Post-heroic leadership, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like we don't want heroics in in our processes. We want processes that run really smoothly. And I think early COVID took a lot of heroics. Um. And those people, some of them were handsomely rewarded. Like some of the restaurants that did take out really well, like really did well in COVID. Uh, My daughter worked for a fine dining restaurant and (laughs) they would have never thought they could do fine dining takeout at the level that they did. And they did so much fine dining takeout. It never stopped because even though they opened, people still liked the idea of having fine dining at home. And so there's some, you know, there's some funny things that that went really well in COVID for people that tried new things. Um, I know there's, you know, just from the boarded up buildings in my town and around, you know, there's, there's ones that didn't experiment well, didn't win at that game um, or weren't nimble enough or were too tied to the way it's always been done. Or just ran out of cash. Yeah. Um, and so um, that that's some of the trauma. And I, I'm not even sure we know the impact of all those things. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And, and the fear, I think, I, it, actually, in my experience, the people that were experimenting were too busy to have fear. They oh. just were like one foot in front of the other. They knew their next thing to try. The pe- fear almost implies to me like, an immobilization. Mm-hmm. I will say sometimes people come to me as their last experiment as a coach. And I always ask them, like, when they come to me, if I'm like, if I'm their last $10,000, like for coaching, I usually just tell them to buy groceries. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. I don't want to be their last thing they try. It's too, mm-hmm. coaching's too slow. Like it takes change, like it's a big trajectory and it has huge payoff, but Sometimes people come to me when they're desperate and, um, and I haven't found that to be, I, I don't want to be in that role. Sure. It's not a good place for experimentation, that desperation. Right. Exactly. Cause those two things just fight each other. Like you have to, you know, desperation, I guess it could go either way in some ways, I guess it's how you view desperation, right? Cause sort of to your point, some of those people were just putting one foot in front of the other you know, just doing anyone who follows me knows this is my favorite phrase. Just do the next right thing. You cannot climb the whole mountain, like just do the next right thing. 
But then sometimes that desperation can also, as you said, paralyze you. And it's interesting how those things can, they're, they're sort of polarizing. They can kind of pull you in different directions. Well, and I think the fear around money is more um, paralyzing than any other fear. Oh, sure. Maslow, so when right. I say that, I think I'm actually talking about fear of like financial failure can immobilize people. It also, and, and, you know, I haven't had this thought before, but when I talk about safe to fail, as soon as you have that fear around money, then you, you're no longer safe to fail, which makes it really doubly difficult to experiment. Sure. I mean, outside of COVID, just normal, you know, work life. If I'm afraid that this experiment's going to get me fired, (laughs) you know, it's pretty basic. Um, And I think sometimes leaders can miss that, like miss the, because in their mind, like this would never get you fired. Like, why would you even think about that? You know, but that's where that whole context and boundaries comes in. Like you have to be really clear using that experimental language that you talked about before that no, like you really like, you're not going to, you're not going to get fired. Don't be unethical, (laughs) you know, but like, you're not going to get fired for this. Well, and also you get some cover if you've actually gotten by it. So if you, if you've gone to your boss and said, Hey, here's the data we're looking at. Here's the next experiment I want to try. What do you think? And you use that feedback loop. And you get there by and you actually buy yourself some cover when you experiment. Mm-hmm. Right. And you can kind of co-create that experiment with them. That's right. You know, and again, there might be more context that together you come up with. That's right. Um, and defining those boundaries. Um, all right. I have one more question for you. This is a question I ask almost everybody on the podcast. And I'm super excited about your answer. Uh, when you, when we reached out and said, Hey, you know, interested in being on the podcast and you heard the title wild hearts at work, Hmm. what comes up for you when you think about wild hearts? I mean, it, it, it goes back to the unicorns that I work with. Um, it goes back to, I, I think there's something, there's something you can choose to do at work and it's like. I, w- I really want to launch like a program um, called something like you're, you're creating your leadership brand. Like we talk about personal branding, but like, who are you as a leader? What do you bring to the world? What, what's the thought leadership that's yours? And I, I think there's something about um, the title that really brings that up for me. Like, like, what's the wild thing that only you think? What's the wild wisdom in your heart? What's the, what's the thought you think in the middle of the night that nobody's thought before? And, um, and I love that. I think, I think, um, (laughs) I, I, you know, I've lost a few people recently, like they've died Mm -hmm. and, and, um, and so I've had this thought, it's so transient. They're like there one day and then they're gone. And then what's the footprint that's left behind? And so I I just think to, to think thoughts that are unique, to, to play with those thoughts, to share those thoughts, to dialogue about those thoughts, like that's legacy. 
And so um, there's something about that authenticity and wildness and the and that wild wisdom that that I really love the idea of. I think it's sort of the heart of meaning um, and fulfillment at work. And um, and 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 I think you know there's a there's a flirt in the title for all of that. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. It's I always feel weird, like it's a self-indulgent question, and it's really not intended to be. It's more every time I ask that question, I get such a beautiful answer, just mm-hmm. like that. And I I feel like every answer that we get speaks to somebody different who's listening, right? Mm-hmm. That that each different perspective about what that might mean is touching on somebody else. Um, so I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that answer. Yeah, nobody well, nobody wants to be the boring at work person. Right? <laughs> That's me. I'm the boring guy at work. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I've gotten that answer a couple of times too, which is that, you know, in one way or another, everybody is a wild heart at work if you give them the opportunity. Yeah. And, you know, I think you kind of spoke to that as well. So I love that. Um, so as we wrap up, Melanie, first of all, again, thank you so much for being here. I, I love these conversations. Um, I cannot wait to read all of your book. Uh, I got to read expert. Um, so if people are listening and they want to know more about you or know more about your work, can you pitch it all to them? Can you tell them where they can find you? And yeah, absolutely. Um, so you, you can find me on my website, melanieparish.com, but I would love to, um, I would love to give you a free copy of my book. I'm happy to do that. Ooh. And uh, if you email me, Melanie at experimentalleader.com, uh, just let me know why you want my book. And I'd love to, I'd love to send you a digital copy. Amazing listeners. So one more time, she's offering you a free digital copy of her book. Amazing. So email her at, uh, Tell her that you came from the podcast. I'm just saying, and tell her why you want the book. Um, but that's super cool. Thank you so much for that, Melanie. Absolutely. Um, and I believe you're also on Twitter. Is that right? Oh, I'm on Twitter. Okay. Well, so uh... <laughs> we can put your handle in the show notes yeah, so that people can find you. They're not going to. Rem- <laughs> I will put oh, your ha- Twitter handle in the show notes. Um, and then again, your website, and then the book is out there. Um, so you're going to send them a free copy. Can they also find it on places like Amazon? Yeah, it's everywhere. You can buy it. It's on Kindle. It's on, you know, it's on Amazon. Uh, the experimental leader, be a new kind of boss to cultivate an organization of innovators. God, I feel like that's what everybody wants right now. (laughs) So very timely, very timely. Well, again, Melanie, Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the very generous gift of your book. I will put all of that information in the show notes so that people can find you um, and can get the book from you. Um, But just thank you for your wisdom and thank you for all that you do in the world for these wild hearts. Thank you so much. It was so fun to talk to you. Really enjoyed being here. Awesome. And for you, my dear, dear listeners, thank you for joining us again this week. I never, ever take for granted your listenership. So Thank you for joining us. Uh, A reminder that we do have a Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show, you could also find that in the show notes. And also, I don't mention this often, but these videos are on the YouTube channel. Uh, So it's always fun to watch like Melissa trying to take a drink from her water bottle without making noise on the microphone. So other than that, 
I hope you're all having a wonderful week. And until next time, dear hearts, stay wild. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Wild Hearts at Work. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and share. For more resources and to connect with Melissa, visit melissaboggs.com. Also, if you or someone you know is doing great work in a wild way, get in touch about being a guest on the show. Until next time.